Chapter 18 of First Lensman by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Lensman, Chapter 18. Conway Costigan, leaving behind him scores of clues, all highly misleading, severed his connection with Uranium Inc. as soon as he dared after Operations Wilnick had been brought to a successful close. The technical operation, that is. The legal battles in which it figured so largely were to run on for enough years to make the word Zwilnik a common noun and adjective in the language. He came to tell us as unobtrusively as was his wont, and took an inconspicuous but very active part in Operation Matisse, now in full swing. "'Now is the time for all good men and true to come to the aid of the party, eh?' Cleo Costigan giggled. You can play that straight across the keyboard of your electric pet, and not with just two fingers, either. Did you hear what the boss told him today? Yes. The girl's levity disappeared. They're so dirty, Spud. I'm really afraid. So am I. But we're not too lily-fingered ourselves, if we have to be, and we're covering them like a blanket, Kinnison and Sam's both. Good. And in that connection, I'll have to be out half the night again tonight— all right? Of course. It's so nice having you home at all, darling, instead of a million light-years away, that I'm practically delirious with delight. It was sometimes hard to tell what impish Mrs. Costigan meant by what she said. Costigan looked at her, decided she was taking him for a ride, and smacked her a couple of times where it would do the most good. He then kissed her thoroughly and left. He had very little time these days either to himself or for his lovely and adored wife. For Roderick Kinnison's campaign, which had started out rough and not too clean, became rougher and rougher, and no cleaner as it went along. Morgan and his crew were swinging from the heels, with everything and anything they could dig up or invent, however little of truth or even of plausibility it might contain and Rod the Rock had never held even in principle with the gentle precept of turning the other cheek. He was rather an Old Testamentarian, and he was no neophyte at dirty fighting. As a young operative, skilled in the punishing, maiming techniques of hand-to-hand, rough-and-tumble combat, he had brawled successfully in most of the dives of most of the Solarian planets and of most of their moons. With this background, and being a quick study, and under the masterly coaching of Virgil Sams, Nels Bergenholm, and Rularion of North Polar Jupiter, it did not take him long to learn the various gambits and reposts of this non-physical, but nevertheless no-holds-barred political mayhem. And the boys and girls of the patrol worked like badgers, digging up an item here and a fact there and a bit of information somewhere else, all for the day of reckoning which was to come. They used ultra-wave scanners, spy-rays, long-eyes, stool-pigeons, everything they could think of to use, and they could not always be blocked out or evaded. "'We've got it, boss. Now let's use it!' "'No, save it. Nail it down solid. Get the facts, names, dates, places, and amounts. Prove it first, then save it.' "'Prove it, save it.' The joint injunction was used so often that it came to be a slogan and was accepted as such. Unlike most slogans, however, it was carefully and diligently put to use. The operatives proved it and saved it, 
over and over, over and over again, by dint of what unsparing effort and selfless devotion only they themselves ever fully knew. Kinnison stumped the continent. He visited every state, all of the big cities, most of the towns, and many villages and hamlets, and always, wherever he went, a part of the show was to demonstrate to his audiences how the lens worked. Look at me. You know that no two individuals are or ever can be alike. Robert Johnson is not like Fred Smith. Joe Jones is entirely different from John Brown. Look at me again. Concentrate upon whatever it is in your mind that makes me Roderick Kinnison the individual. That will enable each of you to get into as close touch with me as though our two minds were one. I am not talking now. You are reading my mind. Since you are reading my very mind, you know exactly what I am really thinking, for better or for worse. It is impossible for my mind to lie to yours, since I can change neither the basic pattern of my personality nor my basic way of thought, nor would I if I could. Being in my mind, you know that already. You know what my basic quality is. My friends call it strength and courage. Pirate Chief Morgan and his cutthroat crew call it many other things. Be that as it may, you now know whether or not you want me for your president. I can do nothing whatever to sway your opinion. For what your minds have perceived you know to be the truth. That is the way the lens works. It bears the depths of my mind to yours, and in return enables me to understand your thoughts. But it is in no sense hypnotism, as Morgan is so foolishly trying to make you believe. Morgan knows as well as the rest of us do that even the most accomplished hypnotist, with all his apparatus, cannot affect a strong and definitely opposed will. He is therefore saying that each and every one of you now receiving this thought is such a spineless weakling that—but you may draw your own conclusions. In closing, remember, nail this fact down so solidly that you will never forget it. A sound and healthy mind cannot lie. The mouth can and does. So does the typewriter. But the mind never. I can hide my thoughts from you even while we are on rapport like this but I cannot lie to you. That is why, some day, all of your highest executives will have to be lensmen, and not politicians, diplomats, crooks, and boodlers. I thank you. As that long, bitter, incredibly vicious campaign neared its vitriolic end, tension mounted higher and ever higher, and in a room in the Sam's home, three young lensmen and a red-haired girl were not at ease. All four were lean and drawn. Jack Kinnison was talking. Not the party so much, but Dad. He started out with bare fists, and now he's wading into him with spiked brass knuckles. You can play that across the board, Costigan agreed. He's really giving em hell, Northrop said admiringly. Did you boys listen in on his Casper speech last night? They hadn't. They had been too busy. I could give it to you on your lenses, but I couldn't reproduce the tone, the exquisite way he lifted large pieces of hide and rubbed salt into the raw places. When he gets excited, you know he can't help but use his voice, too, so I got some of it on a record. He starts out on voice, nice and easy, 
as usual, then goes on to his lens without talking, then starts yelling as well as thinking. Listen. You ought to have a lensman president. You may not believe that any lensman is, and as a matter of fact must be incorruptible. That is my belief, as you can feel for yourselves, but I cannot prove it to you. Only time can do that. It is a self-evident fact, however, which you can feel for yourselves, that a lensman president could not lie to you except by word of mouth or in writing. You could demand from him at any time a lensed statement upon any subject. Upon some matters of state he could and should refuse to answer, but not upon any question involving moral turpitude. If he answered, you would know the truth. If he refused to answer, you would know why and could initiate impeachment proceedings then and there. In the past there have been presidents who used that high office for low purposes, whose very memory reeks of malfeasance and corruption. One was impeached, others should have been. Witherspoon never should have been elected. Witherspoon should have been impeached the day after he was inaugurated. Witherspoon should be impeached now. We know, and at the grand rally at New York Spaceport three weeks from tonight we are going to prove that Witherspoon is simply a minor cogwheel in the Morgantown Isaacson machine, playing footsie at command with whatever group happens to be the highest bidder at the moment, irrespective of North America's or the system's good. Witherspoon is a gangster, a cheat, and a goddamn liar, but he is of very little actual importance, merely a boodling nincompoop. Morgan is the real boss and the real menace, the operating engineer of the lowest down, lousiest, filthiest, rottenest, most corrupt machine of murderers, extortionists, bribe-takers, panderers, perjurers, and other pimples on the body politic that has ever disgraced any so-called civilized government. Good night. Wow, Jack Kinnison yelped. That's high even for him. Just a minute, Jack, Jill cautioned. The other side, too. Listen to this choice bit from Senator Morgan. It is not exactly hypnotism, but something infinitely worse, something that steals away your very minds, that makes anyone listening believe that white is yellow, red, purple, or pea-green. Until our scientists have checked this menace, until we have every wear of that cursed lens behind steel bars, I advise you in all earnestness not to listen to them at all. If you do listen, your minds will surely be insidiously decomposed and broken. You will surely end your days gibbering in a padded cell. And murders? Murders! The feeble remnants of the gangs which our government has all but wiped out may perhaps commit a murder or so per year, the perpetrators of which are caught, tried, and punished. But how many of your sons and daughters has Roderick Kinnison murdered, either personally or through his uniformed slaves? Think, read the record, then make him explain if he can, but do not listen to his lying, mind-destroying lens. Democracy? Bah! What does Rod the Rock Kinnison, the hardest, most vicious tyrant, the most relentless and pitiless martinet ever known to any armed force in the long history of our world, know of democracy? Nothing. He understands only force. All who oppose him in anything, however small, or who seek to reason with him, 
die without record or trace, and if he is not arrested, tried, and executed, all such will continue, tracelessly and without any pretense of trial, to die. But at bottom, even though he is not intelligent enough to realize it, he is merely one more in the long parade of tools of ruthless and predatory wealth, the moneyed powers. They, my friends, never sleep. They have only one God, one tenet, one creed, the almighty credit. That is what they are after, and note how craftily, how stealthily, they have done and are doing their grabbing. Where is your representation upon the so-called Galactic Council? How did this criminal, this vicious, this outrageously unconstitutional, this irresponsible, uncontrollable, and dictatorial monstrosity come into being? How and when did you give this bloated colossus the right to establish its own currency, to have the immeasurable effrontery to debar the solidest currency in the universe, the credit of North America, from interplanetary and interstellar commerce? Their aim is clear. They intend to tax you into slavery and death. Do not forget for one instant, my friends, that the power to tax is the power to destroy. The power to tax is the power to destroy. Our forefathers fought and bled and died to establish the principle that taxation without rep— And so on, for one solid hour, Jill snarled as she snapped the switch viciously. How do you like them potatoes? Hell's blazing pinnacles. This from Jack, silent for seconds, and— Rugged stuff. Very, very rugged. From Northrop. No wonder you look sort of pooped, Spud. Being chief bodyguard must have developed recently into quite a chore. You ain't just snapping your choppers, bub, was Costigan's grimly flippant reply. I've yelled for help, in force. So have I, and I'm going to yell again right now, Jack declared. I don't know whether Dad is going to kill Morgan or not, and don't give a damn, but if Morgan isn't going all out to kill Dad, it's because they've forgotten how to make bombs. He lends a call to Bergenholm. Yes, Jack? I will refer you to Rolarion, who has had this matter under consideration. Yes, John Kinnison, I have considered the matter and have taken action. The Jovian's calmly assured thought rolled into the minds of all, even lensless Jills. The point, youth, was well taken. It was your thought that some thousands, perhaps five, of spy-ray operators and other operatives will be required to ensure that the Grand Rally will not be marred by episodes of violence. It was, Jack said flatly. It still is. Not having considered all possible contingencies, nor the extent of the field of necessary actions, you err. The number will approach nineteen thousand very nearly. Admiral Clayton has been so advised, and his staff is now at work upon a plan of action in accordance with my recommendation. Your suggestions, Conway Costigan, in the matter of immediate protection of Roderick Kinnison's person, are now in effect, and you are hereby relieved of that responsibility. I assume that you four wish to continue at work? The Jovian's assumption was sound. I suggest, then, that you confer with Admiral Clayton and fit yourselves into his program of security. I intend to make the same suggestion to all lensmen and other qualified persons not engaged in work of more pressing importance. Rularian cut off and Jack scowled blackly. 
The grand rally is going to be held three weeks before Election Day. I still don't like it. I'd save it until the night before Election, knock their teeth out with it at the last possible minute. You're wrong, Jack. The Chief is right, Costigan argued. Two ways. One, we can't play that kind of ball. Two, this gives them just enough rope to hang themselves. Well, maybe. Kinnison-like, Jack was far from being convinced. But that's the way it's going to be, so let's call Clayton. First, Costigan broke in. Jill, will you please explain why they have to waste as big a man as Kinnison on such a piffling job as president? I was out in the sticks, you know. It doesn't make sense. Because he's the only man alive who can lick Morgan's machine at the polls. Jill stated a simple fact. The patrol can get along without him for one term. After that, it won't make any difference. But Morgan works from the sidelines. Why couldn't he? The psychology is entirely different. Morgan is a boss. Pops Kinnison isn't. He's a leader. See? Oh, I guess so. Yes, go ahead. Outwardly, New York Spaceport did not change appreciably. At any given moment of day or night, there were so many hundreds of persons strolling aimlessly or walking purposely about that an extra hundred or so made no perceptible difference. And the spaceport was only the end point. The patrol's activities began hundreds or thousands or millions or billions of miles away from Earth's metropolis. A web was set up through which not even a grain of sand meteorite could pass undetected. Every spaceship bound for Earth carried at least one passenger who would not otherwise have been aboard. Passengers who, if not wearing lenses, carried service special equipment amply sufficient for the work in hand. Geigers and other vastly more complicated mechanisms flew toward Earth from every direction in space, streamed toward New York and Earth's every channel of traffic. Every train and plane, every bus and boat and car, every conveyance of every kind and every pedestrian approaching New York City was searched, with a search as thorough as it was unobtrusive. And everything and every entity approaching New York spaceport was combed literally by the cubic millimeter. No arrests were made. No package was confiscated or even disturbed throughout the ranks of public checkboxes, in private offices, or in elaborate or casual hiding places. As far as the enemy knew, the patrol had no suspicion whatever that anything out of the ordinary was going on. That is, until the last possible minute. Then a tall, lean, space-tanned veteran spoke softly aloud as though to himself. Spy ray blocks, interference, umbrella, on. Report. That voice, low and soft as it was, was picked up by every service special receiver within a radius of a thousand miles, and by every lensman listening wherever he might be. So were, in a matter of seconds, the replies. Spy ray blocks on, sir. Interference on, sir. Umbrella on, sir. No spy ray could be driven into any part of the tremendous port. No beam, communicator, or detonating could operate anywhere near it. The enemy would now know that something had gone wrong, but he would not be able to do anything about it. Reports received, the tanned man said, still quietly. Operation Zunk will proceed as scheduled. 
and 471 highly skilled men, carrying duplicate keys and or whatever other specialized apparatus and equipment would be necessary, quietly took possession of 471 objects, of almost that many shapes and sizes. And out in the gathering crowd, a few disturbances occurred, and a few ambulances dashed busily here and there. Some women had fainted, no doubt, ran the report. They always did. And Conway Costigan, who had been watching, without seeming even to look at him, a porter loading a truck with opulent-looking hand-luggage from a locker, followed man and truck out into the concourse. Closing up, he asked, "'Where are you taking that luggage, Charlie?' "'Up ramp one, boss,' came the unflurried reply. "'Flight ninety will be taking off on account of this jamboree, and they want it right up there handy.' "'Take it down to the—' Over the years a good many men had tried to catch Conway Costigan off guard or napping, to beat him to the punch or to the draw, with a startlingly uniform lack of success. The landsman's fist travelled a bare seven inches. The supposed porter gasped once and travelled, or rather staggered backward, approximately seven feet, before he collapsed and sprawled unconscious upon the pavement. Decontamination! Costigan remarked, apparently, to empty air, as he picked the fellow up and draped him limply over the truck full of suitcases. "'Dick, front and center. Area 46. Class FX. Hotter than the middle tail race of hell.' "'You call Deke?' a man came running up. "'FX 619. This it?' "'Check. It's yours, partner and all. Take it away.' Costigan strolled on until he met Jack Kinnison, who had a rapidly developing mouse under his left eye. "'How did that happen, Jack?' he demanded sharply. "'Something slip?' "'Not exactly,' Kinnison grinned ruefully. "'I have the damnedest luck. A woman, an old lady at that, thought I was staging a hold-up and swung on me with her handbag, southpaw and from the rear. And if you laugh, you untuneful harp, I'll hang one right on the end of your chin, so help me.' "'Far be it from such,' Costigan assured him, and did not quite laugh. "'Wonder how we came out. They should have reported before this. Psst! Here it comes!' Decontamination was complete. Operation Zunk had been a one hundred percent success. There had been no casualties. Except for one black eye, Costigan could not help adding, but his lens and his service specials were off. Jack would have brained him if any of them had been on. Linking arms, the two lensmen strode away toward Ramp 4, which was to be their station. This was the largest crowd Earth had ever known. Everybody, particularly the nationalists, had wondered why this climactic political rally had been set for three full weeks ahead of the election, but their curiosity had not been satisfied. Furthermore, this meeting had been advertised as no previous one had ever been. Neither pains nor cash had been spared in giving it the greatest build-up ever known. Not only had every channel of communication been loaded for weeks, but also Sam's workers had been very busily engaged in starting rumors, which grew, as rumors do, into things which their own fathers and mothers could not recognize. And the baffled nationalists, trying to play the whole thing down, made matters worse. Interest spread from North America to the other continents, 
to the other planets and to the other solar systems. Thus, to say that everybody was interested in and was listening to the Cosmocrats' Grand Rally would not be too serious an exaggeration. Roderick Kinnison stepped up to the battery of microphones. Certain screens were cut. Fellow entities of civilization and others. While it may seem strange to broadcast a political rally to other continents and to beam it to other worlds, it was necessary in this case. The message to be given, while it will go into the political affairs of the North American continent of Tellus, will deal primarily with a far larger thing, a matter which will be of paramount importance to all intelligent beings of every inhabited world. You know how to attune your minds to mine. Do it now. He staggered mentally under the shock of encountering practically simultaneously so many minds, but rallied strongly and went on via lens. My first message is not to you, my fellow cosmocrats, nor to you, my fellow dwellers on earth, nor even to you, my fellow adherents to civilization, but to the enemy. I do not mean my political opponents, the nationalists, who are almost all loyal fellow North Americans. I mean the entities who are using the leaders of that nationalist party as pawns in a vastly larger game. I know, enemy, that you are listening. I know that you had goon squads in this audience, to kill me and my superior officer. Know now that they are impotent. I know that you had atomic bombs, with which to obliterate this assemblage and this entire area. They have been disassembled and stored. I know that you had large supplies of radioactive dusts. They now lie in the patrol vaults near Weehawken. All the devices which you intended to employ are known, and all save one have been either nullified or confiscated. That one exception is your war fleet, a force sufficient in your opinion to wipe out all the armed forces of the Galactic Patrol. You intended to use it in case we Cosmocrats win this forthcoming election. You may decide to use it now. Do so if you like. You can do nothing to interrupt or to affect this meeting. This is all I have to say to you, enemy of civilization. Now to you, my legitimate audience. I am not here to deliver the address promised you, but merely to introduce the real speaker, First Lensman Virgil Sams. A mental gasp, million strong, made itself tellingly felt. Yes, First Lensman Sams, of whom you all know. He has not been attending political meetings because we, his advisers, would not let him. Why? Here are the facts. Through Archibald Isaacson of Interstellar Spaceways, he was offered a bribe which would in a few years have amounted to some fifty billion credits, more wealth than any individual entity has ever possessed. Then there was an attempt at murder, which we were able, just barely, to block. Knowing there was no other place on earth where he would be safe, we took him to the hill. You know what happened. You know what condition the hill is in now. This warfare was ascribed to pirates. This whole stupendous operation, however, was made in a vain attempt to kill one man, Virgil Sams. The enemy knew, and we learned, that Sams is the greatest man who has ever lived. 
His name will last as long as civilization endures, for it is he, and only he, who can make it possible for civilization to endure. Why was I not killed? Why was I allowed to keep on making campaign speeches? Because I do not count. I am of no more importance to the cause of civilization than is my opponent Witherspoon to that of the enemy. I am a wheel-horse, a plugger. You all know me, Rocky Rod Kinnison, the hard-boiled egg. I've got guts enough to stand up and fight for what I know is right. I've got the guts and the inclination to stand up and slug it out, toe-to-toe, with man, beast, or devil. I would make, and will make, a good president. I've got the guts and inclination to keep on slugging after you elect me. Before God, I promise to smash down every machine-made crook who tries to hold any part of our government down in the reeking muck in which it now is. I am a plugger and a slugger, with no spark of the terrific flame of inspirational genius which makes Virgil Sams what he so uniquely is. My kind may be important, but I individually am not. There are so many of us. If they had killed me, another slugger would have taken my place, and the effect upon the job would have been nil. Virgil Sams, however, cannot be replaced, and the enemy knows it. He is unique in all history. No one else can do his job. If he is killed before the principles for which he is working are firmly established, civilization will collapse back into barbarism. It will not recover until another such mind comes into existence, the probability of which occurrence I will let you compute for yourselves. For those reasons, Virgil Sams is not here in person, nor is he in the hill, since the enemy may now possess weapons powerful enough to destroy not only that hitherto impregnable fortress, but also the whole earth. And they would destroy earth without a qualm, if in so doing they could kill the first lensman. Therefore, Sam's is now out in deep space. Our fleet is waiting to be attacked. If we win, the Galactic Patrol will go on. If we lose, we hope you shall have learned enough so that we will not have died uselessly. Die? Why should you die? You are safe on earth. Ah, one of the goons sent that thought. If our fleet is defeated, no lensman anywhere will live a week. The enemy will see to that. That is all from me. Stay tuned. Come in, first lensman, Virgil Sams. Take over, sir. It was psychologically impossible for Virgil Sams to use such language as Kinnison had just employed, nor was it either necessary or desirable that he should. The ground had been prepared. Therefore, coldly, impersonally, logically, tellingly, he told the whole terrific story. He revealed the most important things dug up by the patrol's indefatigable investigators, reciting names, places, dates, transactions, and amounts. Only in the last couple of minutes did he warm up at all. Nor is this in any sense a smear campaign or a bringing of baseless charges to becloud the issue or to vilify without cause and upon the very eve of election a political opponent. These are facts. Formal charges are now being preferred, every person mentioned and many others 
will be put under arrest as soon as possible. If any one of them were in any degree innocent, our case against him could be made to fall in less than the three weeks intervening before election day. That is why this meeting is being held at this time. Not one of them is innocent. Being guilty, and knowing that we can and will prove guilt, they will adopt a policy of delay and recrimination. Since our courts are, for the most part, just, the accused will be able to delay the trials and the actual presentation of evidence until after election day. Forewarned, however, you will know exactly why the trials will have been delayed, and in spite of the fog of misrepresentation, you will know where the truth lies. You will know how to cast your votes. You will vote for Roderick Kinnison and for those who support him. There is no need for me to enlarge upon the character of Port Admiral Kinnison. You know him as well as I do. Honest, incorruptible, fearless. You know that he will make the best president we have ever had. If you do not already know it, ask any one of the hundreds of thousands of strong, able, clear-thinking young men and women who have served under him in our armed forces. I thank you, everyone who has listened, for your interest. End of chapter 18